Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 102. With Anish Chowdhury, the CEO of Soul Physio Lifestyle that was born largely from his own personal struggles. As we start off a new year and season five of the podcast, we'll continue where we left off with season four with a focus on health and wellness that will take a shift to the importance of brain health, mental health, and well being. If we want to improve our results and the brain is involved with everything that we do and everything that we are, then we must put our attention towards understanding how we can optimize this organ, our brain. We all know that 2020 was difficult for many people, but those who struggled the most were those who were already struggling. The Centers for Disease Control found that from a survey in June of 2020, adults in the U.S. reported considerably elevated adverse mental health conditions associated with COVID-19 and that 40.9 of over 5,000 respondents reported an adverse mental or behavioral health condition, including symptoms of anxiety disorder, trauma-related symptoms, new or increased substance use, or thoughts of suicide. When I was introduced to Anish Chowdhury through a mutual friend, you'll see why I took one look at the work he's doing and knew immediately that I had to interview him for our first podcast to launch 2021 to provide some hope and direction for those who might either know someone who's struggling or going through their own personal struggle at this time. Anish dealt with significant mental illness and addiction through his teenage years and into his early 20s. He was diagnosed with conditions including depression, anxiety, bipolar, and this led him to search for answers as to why he was feeling the way he did. A major shift occurred for Anish when he had his brain scanned in 2013 at Amen Clinics. He learned that the brain can heal itself where his brain might be imbalanced, leading to have the symptoms he was having. These answers gave him hope and direction that catapulted him into years of diligent study and lifestyle change. He got his bachelor's degree in psychology with a concentration of behavioral neuroscience. And Nish also has a list of certifications in the area of health and wellness, including a brain health coach certification through Amen Clinics, making him a true expert in the field of mental health, well-being, and neuroscience. Welcome, Anish, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast and sharing your incredible personal story where you defy the odds, showing the dedication you've put to this area. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea, and, and what a wonderful introduction. I'm excited to be able to be here, share my journey with the listeners, and be able to just educate people and you know, help out where I can. Absolutely. Well, you've had quite a journey. And, you know, I think it's crazy that when we first spoke, it was actually New Year's Eve when most people are out celebrating and you and I were just thinking and brainstorming on new ways um, to launch 2021. But it really hit me when we were talking that you understand this topic at the brain level. 
And this is something that none of us were taught in school. And most families that have these issues running through decades and decades and histories of families, they just sweep these issues under the rug and they're not discussed or addressed out loud. Um, and this doesn't solve the problem. So I shared with you that when I first encountered someone with a serious addiction, I was at a loss of what to do. And this is going back 20 years ago. It feels like forever ago now, but um, this was years before there was Google around. I'm sure it was there, but I didn't know about it. And I would just go to the library and look through books and try to figure out I was trying to understand alcoholism and why one person can say no to having a second drink and why another person just keeps going. And I just, it just baffled me why we were never taught this in school. Can you share just how deep your addiction to marijuana and alcohol was, how you think it began and how you were able to defy the odds and make it to the other side for recovery? Absolutely. And I'm more than happy to share. I mean, I think you're absolutely right in hitting on that. This is a topic that's not taught about in schools because it's not well understood by parents, by faculty, by, by students, by those even in it. Those have even recovered. There's a degree of mysticism around it because there hasn't been, you know, a one size fits all program like, okay, well, you, you're labeled as an addict, quote unquote. So you do this exactly and then you will do this. It's not linear like and even I would argue that cancer, heart disease, those diseases are not linear either, but it's much more predictable in terms of, okay, here's what's happening within the body. The brain is extremely complex and that's what makes addiction a very, very multifaceted disease. Although I choose to, I don't like to call it a disease, even though so many people do call it a disease. I mean, in, in my world now that like I look at it as an opportunity, like an opportunity to be able to look inwards and, and be able to get to know yourself on a deeper level. And, you know, to, to answer your question about how this phenomenon has manifested in my life was that I started drinking at the age of 14. So actually when I was in India, a family member had given me alcohol. I mean, at the age of 14, I, I had a couple cocktails and I felt like crap. And then I didn't drink again for a year. And then all of a sudden I found my parents liquor cabinet in the basement. And then I, before I knew it, I had friends over every single weekend drinking and I would just want them to come over, not to be with them, just so I could drink. So whatever was going on in my brain, it, it just, there was a degree of escapism that I really liked because I think there was already a lot of anxiety that was present at that early age. And right. I would say that out of alcohol and marijuana, I was much more addicted to marijuana. And when I started smoking at the age of 17, started doing it pretty much every day right to begin with. And within six months of starting, I got arrested for having marijuana at school. Thankfully, it was two months before my 18th birthday. So I didn't have major long-term ramifications, but that was really my first experience with drug and alcohol treatment was right at the age of 17. So I knew that like, I used to tell myself that this behavior is not normal, but I know one day I'm going to be able to get past it. But for right now, I felt like my brain was telling me that, that that's what I needed in order to survive. I think that at the neuroscience level, what causes us to use these different chemicals, whatever they are, in my case, marijuana and alcohol, that it's my brain telling me that I need these chemicals to survive, that if you don't do this, then you're not going to be able to make it through the day. 
And for whatever reason, the way my brain is wired, as well as other addicts and alcoholics brains are wired, don't have a clear understanding of that, it creates what we call a phenomenon of craving within the body. And as an addict, it pushes you to almost any length to want to get that substance that is your drug of choice. And that's what's extremely scary about it, because you're willing to, to, you know, harm other people, harm yourself, and go to extremely desperate lengths just to get that next fix. And that's what makes it such a dangerous disease. And in my case, really where it led to, I would say at the darkest of my times was, you know, I've checked myself into a hospital more than one occasion for being suicidal. I mean, really at the depths of my darkness, I, I actually contemplated pawning my mom's wedding ring just to smoke weed. And, and people hear that, they're like, what? Like, that makes no sense. I'm like, I know, it, but that that's what addiction can do to people. And that that's really the phenomenon of how, like, I really had to teach myself how to become more self-aware and like the, the second part of your question and kind of what brought me out of it was, you know, I've worked with therapists for six or seven years. I was working with psychiatrists on and off different medications for six years. And then really what brought things around for me, as you mentioned in the introduction, was getting my brain scanned in 2013 at the Amen Clinics and seeing my brain in a concrete way. You know, this area is overactive. It's causing this behavior. This area is underactive, it's causing that behavior. And here's a list of things you can do to bring your brain back in balance. And I wish it could say it was extremely linear from that point, but it gave me hope in knowing that it wasn't a problem with me because that's so much of what made me feel like a bad person was that, you know, my family, we, we were well off, we traveled there. There was no like reason that I could think of that caused me to be the way I was except for me being a bad person. That's what I used to tell myself over and over again. Wow. And then really what, like I said, seeing my brain scan gave me hope. And that's when I dedicated my life to learning neuroscience for you know, my undergraduate degree. And then I got wellness certifications and exercise, meditation, yoga, genetics, and a whole bunch of other things that truly understand how you can heal the body at the deepest level by living your lifestyle. And then continuing to have trial and error over a course of years has finally led me to the place of where I'm at today, where I, you know, I own two clinics and I, I see the solution as really being educating children, parents and faculty to incorporate these tools as early on as possible. So we can prime the brain in a positive way, as opposed to, you know, just letting these symptoms come about for whatever reason, without having any idea what's causing them. Wow. That's a, uh a deep explanation of where you've come from and, and thinking that it, it, it doesn't have to be the fact that your family had it, you know, like you, there's always that family, the genetic history. Um, so a lot of the people that I've interviewed talk about the fact that, you know, it's genetic and then there's, you've got to try to break the cycle. Was there any history in your background that you know of? None, not, no, not, right? nothing that so, was, nothing that was diagnosed. Wow. Uh, well, so it's, it, there's, like you say, there's no clear pathway for, you know, this is what it looks like. This is what it is. It's just one of those things where you've got to figure out uh, 
is this damaging my results? You know, I like how Dr. Raymond says, um, since you're certified, he's, he talks about the fact that if it's giving you bad results and you know it's giving you bad results, why are you doing it repeatedly or looking for ways like to steal your, your mom's wedding ring to continue to do it? You know, that's not right. But what, so then you know that there's a problem. It's kind of like, how do you get to that place where you say, you know, this is not a good thing. This is a problem, I guess is my question. I would say that the second that you start to sacrifice important and healthy things in your life Mm -hmm. to replace them with unhealthy substances, that was the moment I knew, like when I was 17, like even when I was 15 and I was drinking, I knew that that like my, like the fact that I'd be at school, like just think, not able to focus on my schoolwork and thinking about, I can't wait till my friends come over this weekend and we get drunk at the age of 15. Like those are not normal thoughts. I mean, I would say like, you know, we talk about obsession and compulsion. And I think that like OCD tendencies are very, very common in those with addiction because we obsess over wanting to get that next hit, get that next fix, whatever way, shape or form it manifests in our life. And then the compulsive part of it comes that we have to act on it, that we convince ourselves we have to act on it in order to to relieve whatever this this obsession is. And it's a very, very deep and vicious cycle when you're really in it. And that's why we have to find ways to be able to break that cycle in order to to kind of rewrite that story and rewire our brain. Well, this is very powerful and niche. For people listening right now, specifically, this can be a challenging time of year, which is why I really wanted to grab a hold of you on New Year's. I wanted this to come out at this time for a reason. And with the pandemic aside, because we know the pandemic amplified this whole issue, but whether someone's struggling with an addiction themselves or living with someone who's struggling, it's a very stressful time of year. And this year, like normally when you start the year, it's a time for, you know, setting goals and rethinking. But with everything that's happened with the pandemic, it would be a hard transition to go from holidays to, you know, a new year without some sort of plan in place. I've covered how to use your brain to break bad habits on past episodes. Episode 35, we covered self-regulation and behavior change. For leaders, there was the the David Hawkins power versus force on episode 70, where we talk about the emotions that you feel that, that bring you to those low levels. And then we spoke with the host of the Brain Tools podcast, Samuel Holston and Kieran Goy for episode 97. They talked about the neuroscience behind our habits and addictions. But can you talk a little bit about understanding what's happening at the brain level so that we can find ways to stop this addictive behavior from the point of view from someone who's been there and come to the other side and now wants to help others to do the same? Absolutely. And from a neuroscience perspective, I can share a little bit about what my scans showed and what Dr. Amen has seen in, in other scans similar to, to people having addictive tendencies, whether it's full-blown addiction alcoholism, whatever it is, was that you know, we, we talk about there's the prefrontal cortex, which is our executive control center in our brain. And, and in reference to addiction, one very important function that it governs is impulse control. And we talk about, you know, being able to manage impulses and kind of having your rational brain 
thinking before you act, because in, in the sense that with addiction, it's very, very heavily emotionally driven. So what my scans showed was an under activity and hypoperfusion is the clinical term of my prefrontal cortex. And then there was overactivity of my limbic system and even more specific than the limbic, than the limbic system is the amygdala. And the amygdala is responsible for the fight or flight response, our survival mechanism. So that was like red hot. That basically what that translates into in symptoms is that I always felt like, you know, that I was thinking very, very heavily emotionally and my brain just didn't have the rational resources to stop myself on acting what I thought I needed to keep myself alive and survive, which my mind was telling me that was alcohol and marijuana. So we look at this survival mechanism that's innate within all of us going back to the caveman days, the fight or flight response where they'd either, you know, there'd be a threat, they'd have to fight or flight. But we look at today, like we don't have to go out in the woods and go hunt for our food. Like I walk upstairs and I open the fridge and there's an abundance of food right there. So that survival mechanism that's innate when in us has become almost maladaptive because it's being firing at such a heavy rapid rate with all these emotional stimuli on the outside. So we think from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, when a child is growing up, their emotional brain is much more stimulated than their rational brain. So as parents, a way to be able to combat that is to, you know, limit screen time, limit sugary foods and other kind of external emotional stimuli that prime that area of the brain and find ways to build the rational side. Because if you imagine that, you know, I'm always, my emotions are way stronger than any kind of reason, I'm always going to be acting from emotion. And that's something that's extremely common in people suffering from addiction. So interesting. Um, now that you have this understanding, I love how you want to make an impact on other people's lives and educate our youth on this topic. And, you know, we've talked about the factors certified from Dr. Amen as one of his brain coaches. And I think it's important to note that I heard him talking about the fact that as parents, once if we know that addiction runs in our family or even with you, do you have kids, Anish? I do uh, not. Okay, so not yet, but something to, to think about. If you know that addiction runs in your family and that if you obviously know what you went through yourself, that it's important now that as parents that we have that discussion with our kids that where we talk about the fact of what is addiction to our children, this, this is stuff that we just never talked about. And he actually talks about it. And I've put a link in the show notes to, you know, his session where he says a script, you know, you could talk to your kids and say, since addiction runs in the family, I want you to be prepared that you might like alcohol more than other people or something along those lines, just so it's thrown out there. So the kid doesn't just go through life. Suddenly they're like, oh, what's this? And then bam, they're drinking at 17. And uh, just something in their heads to say, this is something that you should watch for. So, um, you know, I just think that that's so important. Can you share why you were drawn to working with children and your vision, what you're doing for your foundation for youth and the work that you're doing in schools to help prevent this cycle? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest reason that, that I'd say I want to work with kids is because when children are growing up all the way up until the age of 28, they say the brain is, is still developing at a very high rate. 
and I spoke about the prefrontal cortex, they say that that's the last part of your brain to fully develop. And it doesn't, there's some people say anywhere between the ages of 25 to 30, it's not a concrete consensus, but it, it varies some in, in men and women. And that the prefrontal cortex is developing all the way up until that point. And we live in a society these days that there's so much emotional stimuli coming through us from social media, from school, from, you know, there's people talking about alcohol, there's people talking about the legalization of marijuana. There's just such a heavy input of information. And I feel like looking back at what could have prevented a lot of what I went through was education about brain health, about mental health, about addiction at the level of, you know, education and middle school. That's who we're focusing on our children between the ages of seven and 14, because that's when the brain is really starting to able to develop some of these higher level cognitive functions where a child begins to go out and explore the world beyond what's happened, you know, as a toddler that their parents are exposed to. And so you have different stages between one and six where a lot of the work we're doing is gonna be educating parents because the parents ultimately, if they don't know how their own behaviors could be negatively affecting the brains of their children, that can be a significantly contributing factor to them experiencing mental illness later on, but then just you know shrugging your shoulder and being like, I don't know what's wrong with my kid. And then if so, if parents aren't understanding how their behavior impacts their children's brains, then it can be a perfect example of, you know, the parent for whatever reason, let's say that they, you know, like to drink once or twice, you know, have one or two glasses of wine every night, but they're still putting food on the table and they're still healthy in all other areas of life. But then the child looking at that, they think that, oh, you know, I need wine at the end of the day. Like, like my mom or dad has wine, like that must be what I need. Like it's, it seems like a, a pretty harmless example but it it really runs so much deeper than that. I mean, they pick up on on all kinds of things. Like children are smart. And then, so that's why, you know, that's the parent side. And the other part of what we're doing is educating faculty in schools. Because we look at where a child spends all their time, it's primarily with their parents and with their teachers in schools. So being able to educate teachers on ways to incorporate wellness into the classroom. For example, rather than sending a student to detention or punishing them or putting them in timeout for acting like, you know, for doing something they're not supposed to do, why not make them do push-ups or jumping jacks, promoting, creating something else or like, you know, instead of going in the corner and timeout, you go and meditate, young man, you know, think, things like that, that'll be positive for them. And then, you know, it's not necessarily such a punishment. You explain to them like, okay, you did this behavior, so it was not good, so in order to help you to stop doing that behavior, you did these things that'll help, you know, your brain and, and things like that. So there's different plans and strategies and education we plan to bring to parents and faculty. And the way we plan to deliver that is through an online learning platform called the Mindful Classroom. That That is going to be, you know, we're going to be able to, to have a subscription model with that. And the, the revenue we bring in from the subscription for people that can't afford it, we're going to take that those same programs and implement those in inner city schools for families that can't afford them because they just don't have the funding to be able to incorporate these types of programs. Got it. Well, I must have been a really forward thinking teacher in the late 90s because I used to make my students run laps around the, the school when they were back. 
<laughs> but this was way before I knew about brain health and, and I taught right. behavioral students and the only way I knew how to control them was to tire them out. So I'd be like, run a lap and then come back and let's see if we can keep going forward. But I think that's a, an incredible vision. And I want to connect you. There's a few other speakers that have come on. There's Samantha Wedgby out of uh, Harvard, and she's running the 16th Strong Project. I'll send you this and I'll put everything in the show notes, but um, they're doing these types of programs in the schools right now uh, with regards to ACEs. And what you've been talking about, it actually, she just shared a graphic and I thought of you, I thought I've got to tie you two together because she talked about the fact that alcoholism in the family is an ACE. And so the children growing up in the home, that's an adverse childhood experience that can actually impact their health overall. So I think the two of you would be a great match. That's why I love doing these podcasts so that I can learn from all different people and know who's doing what around the country. And I think it would be a great match for you to even look at what they're doing and see if there's a way to complement with what you've got going with your brain coach. Absolutely. I love that. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, since this is the neuroscience meet social emotional learning podcast, I want to bring in the six SEL competencies. When we spoke on New Year's Eve, actually, there was one of them self-awareness that came up quite a few times in the conversation. So why is self-awareness so important on this topic? What should we know about ourselves and others? And why is our daily routine so important with this topic? The quote, one of my favorite quotes that's kind of coming to mind right now when we talk about self-awareness is that yesterday is history and tomorrow is a mystery. Meaning that what's happened in the past is already done and we can't change that. And what's happened in the future, I see is we can't, spend time like obsessing over it right now because I feel like what causes a lack of self-awareness and where I was functioning many years and where I've seen with a lot of the people we work with is that their mind is either in the past or the future and not right here in the present moment. And that's why we have to make a conscious effort to first off in order to create self-awareness to understand how we're truly feeling in the moment to be able to bring our mind and our attention to the here and now. And that's why being able to create awareness of self in terms of our emotions, in terms of our state of mind, you know, where we're holding tension in our body, our posture, things like that can be mental cues to where if you notice our mind starting to wander to be able to kind of bring that back into the here and now. Because when we talk about creating positive changes in the brain, you know, one of my favorite neuropsychologists, uh, his name is Rick Hansen. Have you heard of him? Yes. Yeah. 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 So I read a lot of Rick Canson's stuff and what he talks about is in, in his book, he wrote a book called hardwiring happiness. And he talks about when, you know, the, the brain has this negativity bias where it's, it, it goes a lot with what I was saying about the fight or flight response, where we have this kind of innate survival mechanism within us. So he said that we, in order to kind of rewrite that, we have to actively put an effort into bringing our mind into the present moment. And that when we have some kind of positive emotion, some kind of positive experience, that in order to rewire the brain from going to thinking negatively to thinking positively, it's obviously negative thoughts play very heavily into addiction, that we really, really sit there and and sit with that positive emotion and imagine it, you know, coming all through our body that and, and really, really trying to seal it in. That's what he calls it, is sealing it in. 
because then that registers your brain to really gives it time to understand like, how does this emotion feel? And then the more and more you're able to do that over a prolonged period of time, it's able to, to create that positive emotion as your natural baseline, as opposed to being in a state of anxiety and depression. And so I think in reference to addiction, incorporating little small tools and tips like this and understanding what things trigger you to lead you into, you know, going from here to what, where you end up at the bar, where, which is the place you don't want to end up, that there has to be self-awareness in the here and now to bring the mind back into the present so we don't end up losing control of our behavior and continuing to repeat that same consequential behavior that we're trying to get away from. Definitely. I, I like his work. There's a graphic that he actually has. I'll put it in, I'll edit it into the video that talks about the negativity bias, showing how many positive thoughts we need to overcome those negative thoughts. We need a certain amount of positive thoughts to override the negative in order to get past it. And also at, you know, just that whole self-awareness of coming to the point that you want to see something different in your life. Like I know that whenever I've made a behavior change and I always try January is a good time of year to, to rethink everything. And then I always look at August as another time, you know, twice a year. So you're not just doing things in January, but twice a year thinking about, you know, what's working for me? What do I need to continue doing? What do I need to stop doing? Um, things like that. Keep doing, um, stop and change. It's a good time of year to think of that. So the self-awareness point to go through certain areas of your life and, and you'll know, right, the, the certain things you're doing that might be time wasters or, and, you know, just being aware, I think it's so important. Absolutely. That's a strong precursor to being able to make any change. Even if you're out there listening and addiction is not something you personally struggle with. I mean, I think that there's all behaviors in life that we would like to change. And we know that it's not as simple as saying, hey, I'm going to do that. And then it happens that there's always barriers to change. And that's where I think self, self-awareness is a universal principle that anybody can benefit regardless of what we're struggling with. Because I think that self-awareness is a precursor to self-improvement that I think a lot of people want to live a better life, but if they're not able to create awareness around what is stopping them from getting from where they are now to where they want to be, it makes it incredibly difficult to get there because you don't just think it and it happens. You, you know, you think about it, you write it out, you make a plan, and then you take small baby steps towards making that plan. And if that's the way you're able to function at, at a baseline, as opposed to trying to make a lot of grandiose changes, because I think a lot of people want, like we may have sometimes have unrealistic goals. So can you explain what Ayurvedic medicine is and how it helped you and how it balances the body? Absolutely. So I think through all of my different explorations, personally and professionally, through seeking different healing modalities, what, where I really came to was Ayurvedic medicine. And one of the, the clinics I own is a full service Ayurvedic clinic in California. And what Ayurveda stands for and what it means, it's a Sanskrit term that means the science of life. And Ayurveda is based on a model of perfect health versus Western medicine is a disease-based model where we have symptoms, we go and see a doctor, a doctor typically prescribes some kind of a, a medication, or, you know, maybe some type of basic lifestyle changes based around those symptoms and that diagnosis. So how Ayurvedic medicine goes on the other side 
is that it's based on a model of perfect health based upon our unique body type. Because Ayurveda says that they're not two, want any two people that are the same. So where someone, a doctor, two people may have heart disease, for example, the, what caused them to have that heart disease are totally different. So if we put them on the same medication, the same treatment plan, those two people are going to have different results because there's a lot of things that happen at an underlying deeper physiological level that lead those people to having those symptoms. So on the flip side, Ayurveda is very heavily prevention based and they, they go by what are, they call it the, the six stages of disease. And that basically what they say is that physical symptoms do not appear until the fourth stage of disease. And they say that there are three stages of imbalance that occur within the body before there's even any physical manifestation of symptoms. So that means that there's a lot that has to happen before symptoms even occur. So the goal is that we're much more proactive in our health and we put together a very healthy daily routine based upon you know diet, herbal medicine, some type of consistent movement, stress management techniques, all that are unique to what, we're, what we are, what we're willing to do, what we're able to do, rather than having to force it and function from a place of stress, which is what I feel like a lot, like the way that I live my life and many others out there do now. So I think that that's where Ayurveda has really taught me to slow down, prioritize my health and, and have like a morning and a nightly routine. So then that way today stays in today. And I don't take any of the baggage from today into tomorrow. And then tomorrow is a new day where I'm able to kind of contain whatever happens within that day. So it's, I'd say it's all about staying in balance. And so when you think about balance versus disease, then it gives you a different lens to be able to look at the way you live your life. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. And Ayurveda stands for the science of life. And so it, it's a complete system of healing based upon what are called the doshas. And without getting too deep into kind of the science behind it, because anyone who's interested could always Google it and there's an abundance of information out there. But it basically says that every person has a unique constitution based upon their doshas. So we all, there, there's three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, which govern different functions within the body. So some people naturally, they have, you know, a, a, a set genetic variation of these doshas. And then kind of like you, you have your phenotype with the expression, they get out of balance with the way we live life. So you're able to understand which one of these doshas are out of balance. And then through a systematic program consisting of diet, herbal medicine, exercise, and some of those other tools I mentioned, you're able to bring those doshas back into a state of balance because they say disease stems from an imbalance in these doshas. So that's where you're able to take a much more preventative and proactive approach versus a reactive approach. And okay, I have symptoms. Now I have to go to the doctor and, and seek out some type of immediate acute treatment. It's much more of a focus on prevention and, and not wanting to get to that point. Got it. I understand now how that could be so powerful to help you stay addiction free. And right. so it just what brings me to my last question for you. Two of my favorite actors of all time, so Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, both relapsed after decades of sobriety. So I've got to ask about this topic because it's real and it's a whole part of addiction. How do you look at relapse? Um, does using your drug of choice ever cross your mind now personally after you've 
been in recovery for so long and how do you prevent relapse from happening? It's a great question. It's a topic that is unfortunately not an easy one to talk about. It certainly does come to my mind, but I think that really the big solution is something we already talked about and self-awareness on an ongoing basis. And one thing that I've witnessed with people that have long-term sobriety, a term that that's talked about in the world of addiction is complacency and becoming, you know, to this place where like, oh, I have all these years of sobriety, so I don't need to do the things that, that I did before to get all this time in sobriety. And that's where then after a while you may be good, like because the, the fact your body hasn't had those, those input of chemicals. So it actually has happened where I've heard stories of other people in recovery that have had a significant amount of time and then relapse is that you almost forget what it was like way back when and you think, oh, so I've been sober this long, so I can go back and do it again. Right. Because you forgot what it was like. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be some way to be able to remind yourself that, you know, it, like they say it's a day at a time. Like there's a reason they say it's a day at a time. So being able to create awareness around the things that, that kept you sober and staying consistent with those things each and every day. That's where Ayurvedic medicine is so big on daily routine. And having that morning and nightly routine, whether it's journaling, you know, reading spiritual literature, attending support groups, you know, reaching out to other people who are still struggling with things that you've struggled with, to talk about it and stay with that level of accountability. But I think it's, it's really comes down to being able to maintain that daily routine and being able to remind yourself about where you came from and how much you don't want to go back there. So I think that it, it's it's a combination of things and. To answer your question, it does pop in my mind, but it's not as much as it used to. I mean, because I've worked so hard on being able to bring my brain back into a state of balance, but there's still times where I may think, oh, I remember that that time in college. And then the thought may creep in, wouldn't it be nice? And then in, in a moment like that, I got to remind myself, well, you know, this is where it's going to lead. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm not going to go there. Right. Oh, you've got such an incredible handle on such a difficult topic. I want to thank you so much for your time, Anish, for all you're doing for the world to give people hope during these challenging times. If anyone wants to learn more about you, they can go to soulphysiolifestyle.com. I'll put the links to your website and your show notes. And for anyone who wants to support your youth foundation, for people uh, just to prevent people from going through these challenges. I think it's in a very important topic there. I'll put the link in the show notes to your giving page. And I've also put some resources for people that, that I found helpful when I was first doing my research on understanding addiction. Um, there was banner health, there was outpatient places that you could go if someone's watching this and they're just like, what do I do? There's places that people can go um, and find help, whether it's an outpatient or inpatient. There's always AA. There's books like Changeology that have been pe helping people for decades to change uh, old habits. Um, Five Steps to Realizing Your Goals and Resolutions, John Norcross. He, he has an excellent plan on how to stay focused with your goals. There's 
David Hawkins' power versus force, I mentioned it, where you recognize the emotions that you're at. So you say, well, I don't want to feel guilt and shame and how to raise your way up those levels of awareness that you talked about so that you can get to those happier emotions. And I've put all the links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes. Is there any other place that people can follow you on social media? I, I know you're on Facebook, but I couldn't find you on Twitter. Are you on Twitter or LinkedIn? I do have a foundation page. So I have you know, my social media team. They, they are active on Twitter posting on the foundation. And I have a couple of Instagram pages. One is Soul Physio Lifestyle. The other is Soul Physio Foundation. So in that way, you know, we're talking about some of the, the things we're doing on the for-profit side of the business, as well as the nonprofit. And then I'm also on LinkedIn for people that, that desire to connect in kind of a more professional way. That's always uh, someplace I'm active on too. Perfect. I'll put all these links in the show notes. And thanks so much for providing this vision for hope at this time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. It's been a pleasure. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.